Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader. If I could go back 30 or 40 years and learn that at a much earlier age, I would. Because I can think of periods in my life when I was almost incapable of listening and incapable of comprehension. Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by Chris Whitmore. Chris is the CEO of The School's People, a business that brings together professional expertise to serve and to ensure peace of mind for schools across the UK. The School's People was founded on two decades of experience working with, listening to, and delivering results for schools. Chris is a well-known figure in the education sector and is renowned for his no-nonsense practical advice and guidance. He has a track record of creating and delivering solutions to all and any people problems faced by education providers across the UK. Chris joins us today to share his insight as a leader and a human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. It's great to have you with us. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. So can you tell us a little bit about the organisation that you lead, please? Yeah, by all means. We're um, we're a reasonably small corner of a much larger parent organisation. Okay. Um, the parent organisation is the school's advisory service which is the biggest provider of well-being and absence insurance products to um, to schools, academies and multi-academy trusts. Mm-hmm. So the parent organisation has something between four and four and a half thousand um, school clients at any one point in time, which means that on average, if you drive past five schools, one of them will be ours. Right. Um, so we've, we've got relationships with, uh, with many educational organisations up and down the country. We're a smaller corner of that that was set up in 2010 um, by the owner and managing director of SAS, a guy called John Brady. And he, he set the, the service up, which was originally under the SAS banner, really to provide focused expert support to schools in a range of things that they were telling um, SAS as a parent company that they were struggling with. Okay. And we started off with um, an HR service. It expanded into GDPR and data protection officer stuff. And this year we're getting stuck into executive and leadership coaching. And I'm undertaking a postgraduate qualification in that um, as we speak. And how's that going? Uh, It's been absolutely fascinating. It's been... um, I hesitate to say this because the coaching industry will, will sort of appear out of and slap me, but um, it's been significantly more um, intellectually challenging than I anticipated, okay. which, may, which may reflect a degree of intellectual arrogance on my part when I took it on um, one afternoon in an impulse because right. I was bored. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been really, really interesting. And it, it has links, which you also may hear about later in the Later in the exchanges, it has links to the PhD that I'm doing, um, okay. which is largely around language and memory. So, so yeah, it's been yeah, it's been really interesting and um, kind of pleasing. You know, when you do these impulse things, you think I'll do a mm. course on that, and you've yeah. no idea if you're going to be any good at it. But apparently, yeah. I'm quite good at it too. So, well, that's good. That's good. It's a relief. Yeah, absolutely. And so, beyond all of that, then, what kind of challenges are you up against as a leader of that organisation? Um, the biggest challenge that we have in delivering the quality and level of service that we wish to provide is securing sufficient talent to okay. do so. In that we, across all of our services, we have a number of sort of unique selling points that marketeers tell me I have to have. 
And one of them that we built in right at the beginning of, of um, the organization's launch, we were quite, quite lucky in that um, prior to joining SAS, I was a full-time officer in the National Association of Head Teachers. Prior to that, I was a full-time officer in NSCWT, one of the teacher unions. So mm-hmm. I came to it from that background. And the great thing about the turning point of moving from um, supporting head teachers through that union um, to creating a bespoke service. It's like I could get loads of school leaders and governors and people into a room and just say to them with a sort of reverse engineering helm, if we're going to develop an HR consultancy service, what are all the bits about the services you currently buy yeah. that you absolutely hate? Uh-huh. And then we could just reverse engineer them out. Perfect. Um, but the one that uh, we reverse engineered out that caused us the most problem mm-hmm. is that we demand 20 years worth of senior level schools only HR experience in everybody wow. that we deploy. Okay. So we can literally say to organisations, if you need it, we can bring you a century worth of experience. If yeah. you need it, we can bring you 200 years worth of experience and stick it in a room. Yeah. Um, and it just allows, I think it allows us to operate in a slightly different way because for our client organisations, they're not doing what schools were telling us that they were often doing, mm-hmm. which was attempt to get through a lot of relatively junior people and filtering kind of mechanisms to get to the people in the organisation with the answers and with the expertise. Right. So we decided just to have the people with the answers and the expertise. Okay. But as you can imagine, that's a pretty small pool of people. Yes, yeah. And at the point at which we set up the organisation, local authorities were very helpfully giving some of these highly experienced people large sums of money to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And six months after being given a large sort of, you know, golden goodbye and access to their pension, a lot of these people were bored witless. Yeah. Um, yeah. They'd done all the golf they could do and all the rest of it, and were quite quite happy to come back on a consultancy basis and work for an organisation like us. Um, And some of those people are still working for us. Um, Okay. You know, doing what we do. So I think the biggest challenge is probably the talent pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why, that the, so as I said earlier, we grow organically because if I can't satisfy myself that I can deploy the kind of quality that I want your organisation to have, then I won't work with you. Okay, yeah. Um, I- and some, sometimes those conversations are a little difficult to have because the organisations have needs and mm-hmm. those needs need to be met. But we've always kind of gone for giving you 150% rather than 50%. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so from a talent pipelining point of view, then, are those HR professionals with 20 years experience of schools only, are they still being created? Are people still working in that way? They are in, in certain parts of the country. It varies. I mean, to be honest, the big, the big talent ball is local authorities developing these people in schools HR teams. Right. But it's only really the bigger local authorities that still have Schools HR teams are separate from corporatist and generalist HR teams, which has always seemed bonkers to me because if you're an employer and local authorities do um, in certain types of schools directly employ those people, if you're an employer and 65, 70% of your people work in a certain kind of building, building full of little people or Mm -hmm. slightly larger people, um, and you don't have a specialist team to deal with the regulatory and terms and conditions framework for those people, I think you're mad. Okay. Um, but there are some local authorities that have gone to, you know, centralist teams and it loses something. Okay. And it loses something. So, I mean, God bless them for doing so because sometimes those clients come to us, but it never seemed organisationally sensible to me to do that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. And, and so from your perspective then, so you came through the ranks uh, from an HR perspective, is that correct? 
Not really. Um, HR was, I suppose, in my my career journey, HR was a bit of an afterthought. Okay. In in the sense that um, I suppose I did my growing up, if you like, as a postal worker in Birmingham, born just outside Birmingham, did me growing up there, mm-hmm. and went to Sheffield University in the eighties. Discovered that I like drinking drugs more than I like studying. Um, it therefore wasn't terribly successful and I went home and my mate's dad ran the sorting office he ran the postal sorting office in the town where I lived Uh so he gave me a job which he later came to regret because I got elected as a shop steward with a little bit of a gobby git in those days and then became a union official regional official did some stuff when I left the post office I left to go um, back into education. So I went to Keele University mm-hmm. and did a master's degree in industrial relations. And originally I was going to do pure industrial relations. Um, but I have a lecturer to thank who shall remain nameless for reasons which are about to become obvious, who was so boring um, that, I, that I moved to do uh, industrial relations and employment law. And I fell in love. Um, uh, my partner at the time bought me my first ever employment law textbook, which sounds kind of geeky. <laughs> and I just fell in love with it. I suppose mix of technicality and human stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that master's degree got me my first um, job with a trade union, which was the British Medical Association. Yeah. I left there to go and work for the Association of University Teachers, which then became the University and College Union. Left there to work for the Teachers Union and ASCWT. Left there to work for the National Association of Teachers. So the point at which I started working for SAS in 2010 mm-hmm. as an HR practitioner. My background was principally as an employment and education lawyer. Okay. So I had to learn quite a lot of the HR, the, the sort of purest um, HR stuff. So the HR was really, um, I suppose it was a location in which I could practice employment law without being um, a solicitor. I didn't yeah. want to train to be a solicitor. I wasn't interested in being a barrister, <laughs> which turned out to be a very sensible labour market decision because most That's of those people nice. are not making any money anymore. So I sort of came at HR, and I suppose, sideways, really. And I, I don't think I'd have become the HR practitioner that I now am had my uh, current boss and the owner of the company sort of said to me, here's a blank sheet of paper. Do you want to design something that will okay. better support the schools who are our clients? Yeah, that's that's kind of how it kind of how it went. Okay, and so your leadership journey then. So, how did that happen? Was that something that you'd always sort of set your sights on, or was it quite an organic process? How did your leadership journey evolve to become then chief exec? It's a really it's a really interesting question, and I, I was sort of staring at this this morning, thinking, was there a journey? Was there a series of crashes? I don't know. It's um, <laughs> I suppose the first person who ever, who ever identified me as a leader in inverted commas was way, way back in the post office. Um, and a, a guy whose name I still remember is called Ray Merch, and he was the gentlest area manager we ever had. And he came to be located in this sorting office, which was quite militant and almost, almost entirely male and quite violent uh, as a culture. And he was this gentle, gentle giant. And he said to me one day, he said, you really don't fit here. You, you clearly you know, um, quite intelligent. Many of the people here aren't. They're here because they have no other choices in the labour market. What are you doing? Um, why don't you go off and, and, you know, develop something else? And it sort of planted a seed. I mean, I vehemently disagreed with him. There were, there were lots of guys with PhDs already there mm-hmm. um, who just decided that they quite like being, being postal workers. Yeah. 
But it sort of planted a seed, and I suppose that seed came to fruition when I, I saw an advert for a, a distance learning certificate in industrial relations that led into a postgraduate diploma that led into a master's degree. Um, and eventually, some years later, led into a, a PhD, which I'm currently doing. Mm-hmm. So, but it also started with, with you know, a very gentle human being sort of saying, what are you doing with your life, son? Yeah. Uh, why don't yeah. you ever think about, about where you could be? And I, I suppose over the years, without thinking about it explicitly, um, part of my history is that um, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. So in 2002, I'll be celebrating 20 years next year, um, I stopped drinking and doing drugs. And I ended up leading an insane organisation, which is, there's little clues up here, but um, yeah. I'm a life, lifelong biker, as is my wife. Mm-hmm. And we ended up um, sort of jointly leading a motorcycle club for recovering alcoholics and drug addicts called the Three Percenters, <laughs> which was insanity on wheels really but great fun and the guy who founded one of the founders of that club a guy called mm. pete took me aside one day and said I'm, I'm stepping down as president of the club would you like to lead the club and i kind of went no this <laughs> is <laughs> absolutely not that's that's not just herding cats that's herding you know insane cats um but did and and so I suppose there's been a good deal of happen chance in my life where maybe other people have seen me uh, as a leader in ways that I wouldn't characterise or define myself. Yeah, sometimes that's um, the way, isn't it? And so, you know, has there been a, a journey in the leadership? Yes, but it wasn't intentional. There was no, there was no career plan other than um, following a piece of advice I was given by one of the last communist shop stewards at British Leyland or... Rover or whatever it was in those days, mm-hmm. who came to work on the post. And he's, he kind of said, look, if you want an easy life as you get older, then the best thing to do is get more expensive. <laughs> so, if you, so if you can work your way up the labour market hierarchy, you get to pick and choose what you do, which is one of the great things about, um, about leadership, I guess. But you also, you know, you can do less of it and, and still make a living. So that was the only career plan I really had was was just to to continue to grow and to learn and to add Mm -hmm. skills. And originally the plan was was kind of to, I think, experience as many sectors as I could. But then I fell in love with schools. Uh, First came to work in schools in 2003, one of the teacher unions, and just they're just such unique, quirky, amazingly human, amazingly flawed and yet amazingly magical organisations. Some of the schools we work with, there's there's, um, a primary school, I won't tell you where it is, but there's a primary school I love going to um, that I will just, any excuse to go and visit this school. And it's on an estate that that would make any objective human being weep. It's in a place that has been forgotten by politicians who, you know, if there's any justice in the world, would simply burst into flames from shame. And this primary school is, it's a little like that bit in The Wizard of Oz where it becomes colour. Okay. You, you kind of come off this estate having generally bribed a couple of local kids not to nick your car. Oh, um, and you walk into the school and it's like, it's like the lights come on. Oh. Um, and there is song and dance and colour and magic in the air. And it's just a great place to go and sort of recharge yourself. Yeah, because you, you know, however cynical the world can make you with all the challenges that we face, 
you know, pop into early years in a primary school yeah, yeah, and, you know, spend some time with those kids and realise that, you know, you're incredibly fortunate. So, absolutely. Um, yeah, there was a kind of plan that I was going to do a tour of, of different sectors, really, and experience as much as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but schools took my heart. Oh, and they still sense. have it. So, so they get my brain because it comes as a package. Yeah, absolutely. And and so in terms of those characteristics of leadership then, I understand that your journey was quite organic, but do you think that there are characteristics that go across sort of all leaders or that are useful to all leaders? Or do you think it's case by case or organisation by organisation? I think there's, there's, uh, and there's three things that I would say. One is um, there's a marvellous little test in employment law called the elephant test, which was developed many years ago. It's one of the things I love about employment law. It kicks these things out, these little constructs. Yeah. And then they take on a life of their own. And the elephant test is simply this. The elephants are really difficult to define because they're quite unique creatures. They kind of, they probably should have been extinct, the dinosaurs, and decided not to. Um, and they're quite quirky creatures. And defining them is, is, is difficult. It's one of those conference little things give people a piece of paper and say, define an elephant. Yeah. But if we were to look at, if we were in the same place and we were to look out the window and an elephant was wandering around the street, we'd know what it was. Yeah. yeah, and I think leadership is a little like the elephant test. You know it when you see it. You know it when you experience it. And I think you can you can look at leadership a little like you know job evaluation, an endless number of weighted characteristics which have varying value in in varying roles. But I suppose if I was if I was nailed down the three um, characteristics that I think have to be present in any leader are authenticity. Yeah. You have to be yourself. Any, there used to be uh, great theories about, you know, the hero leader and the great charismatic leader and all those. And um, I'm not sure I'm far I'm supposed, to, supposed to go with language, but they're all just bullshit. Um, authenticity is, is kind of the one thing that is going to enable you to engage with people because human beings are incredibly intuitive, incredibly insightful um, creatures. And we know fakery when we see it. Yeah, we may choose to engage in it for one or more reasons. We may choose for a period of time um, to follow it, but eventually, you know, disappointment is going to come along and there's going to be some kind of severance. Mm-hmm. The second is honesty, and I think that's principally about being honest with others, but being honest with yourself Yeah, about yeah. the strengths that you have, but also the flaws that you have. Um, don't hide them because they're going to be part of, of who you are. Um, as well as being a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, I'm also mildly bipolar. So I'm, I'm kind of yin and yang on legs, really, um, a lot of the time. And I know that, I, you know, any kind of element of being dishonest with myself about what's going on is going to lead me into trouble. It's either going to lead me not to be able to, to deal with the down days or it's going to lead to the up days being focused on something that's completely unproductive. Okay. Uh, and the third, I think, is alignment. In the sense that you, you've got to find a way of aligning your energy and your focus mm-hmm. and your cognitive and intellectual skills and your emotional and psychological skills with a goal that speaks to you. Because if it doesn't speak to you, it ain't going to speak to anybody else. And the language that you speak is just going to be false as soon as it trips off your tongue. And people will appreciate that um, and they won't follow you. Uh, and of course, the last, you know, the, the tautology, the tautological way of approaching leadership is just to say, Leadership is that which in any context engages and enthuses followership. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, circular, 
circular thinking has won because circular thinking has won because, um, and you can't really go any any further. So, but but of all those things, yeah, authenticity is is kind of the one. I'm a I'm a big Brené Brown fan. I could listen to her talk about authenticity all day. Yeah, and yeah. vulnerability, and just you know, reads to talk to you. I don't understand. I get quite a lot of these requests, and most of them just get turned down. But I like the idea of the human, the human CEO, because you know we're we're not we're not supernatural creatures, are we? We're just human beings attempting, hopefully, to achieve something good. Yeah, <laughs> authenticity and alignment is absolutely key, as is honesty. But I think the the, the what you said there about authenticity is true. People are intuitive. People can see through it, and they're not going to follow someone that thinks is just giving them lip service. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And so in terms of a piece of advice that someone's given you that's maybe shaped your leadership style or your approach to leadership, was there an experience or a piece of advice that's helped you along the way? I'll give you two, just for you know, value for money purposes. Um, <laughs> I think the honest answer is the best piece of advice I've ever been given, and it's a piece of advice that I will give to myself, you know, rhetorically and reflexively daily, is stay clean because everything that I've achieved is founded on my sobriety and without my sobriety I have literally nothing and the world would pretty soon destroy itself around me so so that's kind of the, the honest answer mm. the best sort of professional and human advice I was ever given um, was by my current boss an extremely wise man called John Brady mm-hmm. who was a retired miner forcefully retired in the sense that they closed all the bloody pits um but you know he was he was a miner who became an insurance agent agent who then founded a company which grew from half a dozen schools in north nottinghamshire um to four and a half thousand clients and the biggest company of its kind and he and he did that in a number of ways he's he's a charismatic individual in quite a humble way that doesn't make sense but he's also an incredibly wise man. Um, and wisdom is not something that I would ascribe to many people, um, but he's a very wise man. And he told me, he said, he said if, you, um, if you can achieve in any given day, sorry about how that's, that's my elderly mother coming to tell me that she is going somewhere and do I want anything collecting? Oh, that's um, she, uh, yeah, she came to live with my wife like a couple, couple of years back. Um, I probably should have told her I was doing this between 10 and 11, but didn't. And he kind of said, look, if you want a good day, do one thing to grow. So within any given day, find an opportunity for growth and grab it and grow. And that can be as simple as, um, you know, listening to a podcast, reading a, uh, an academic paper, reading a book, um, yeah. having a look at some cartoons, just anything, listen to some music, 10 minutes, Bit of music you've never found. Yeah. In the world of endless AI and algorithms, it is so easy to get from music you like to music that you might like and back again. So yeah. to go and do it, you know, spend 10 or 15 minutes doing that. Um, so do one thing to, to, to grow. Do one thing for your organisation, whoever that is, whether that's an organisation that you're volunteering your energy for, do something for them, or do something for your employer or the organisation that you lead. And do one thing for your family. And choose how you define who your family are. That can be, you know, mm-hmm. that could also involve doing something for, for a charity or doing something for somebody who's suffering from something mm-hmm. that you've dealt with. But do something for the family of humanity each day. Do something to grow. Do something for an organisation that you're aligned with. And if you can do those three things, you will sleep easy. Great advice. 
And there's a there's a beautiful kind of simplicity about that. About mm. I've always liked threes. Things tend to come in threes in my world. I don't know why. Uh, my wife says it's because men can't deal with more than three concepts simultaneously. <laughs> you know? Well, she might be right. She might. She might. You know. She might be right. But um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's probably the best advice I've been given, and it it stuck with me. I think he told me that in a car going somewhere, somewhere in 2011. Couldn't tell you where we're going. Couldn't tell you where we've been. But I remember it's the conversation. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And and so if someone was looking to follow in your footsteps, so either looking to start a career in leadership or just about to take a step up into a leadership role, is there a piece of advice that you'd share with them beyond what you've already shared? Yeah. Um, and some of this is, 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 yeah, going from the simple to the complicated, some of this is founded in the world of a guy called, uh, the work of a guy called Hans-Georg Gadama, who was a philosopher and linguist. And... I guess the advice I would give to people is go and learn about active listening. Mm -hmm. Learn about the power of language and learn about um, how, you know, language is is the world that we dwell in. There's a lovely phrase from one of Gadama's um, papers that, that got collated into books where he talks about tarrying. He talks about tarrying with words and kind of rolling them around in your head and dealing with language in an active way in the same way that you would a work of art. So it doesn't matter what conversation you are having, treat it as if it is the co-creation between those people involved in the dialogue or or more, the the creation of a new linguistic uh, work of art that involves new understanding for both parties involved. And I've always loved that phrase, tarrying. I love I love tarrying. It's just got it rolls off your tongue. It's incredibly evocative. Yeah. But the idea of tarrying with words, and it's the it's the antidote to so much. It's the antidote for what he calls for projection. This idea that in most encounters with other human beings, we've already projected the the end of the dialogue before it's before it's ended. We when we're engaging with text we quite often pick out a few words, assume we know how they're being linked together and come away with assumptions. So I suppose allied to that um, that advice about active listening would be a sort of semi-biblical, assume ye not. Just assumptions kill. Assumptions, yeah. they kill relationships, they kill learning, they kill all sorts of things, assuming that you've understood can often be um, the opposite of developing any genuine comprehension. And for yeah. leaders, it's, it's particularly important because you've got to understand that there's always going to be a power dynamic in most of the dialogue that you have, particularly with people in your organisation. And they may well not be telling you what's in their head. They may well not be telling you their truth. Yeah. And that's... Um, that idea of tarrying with words and exploring with people what their meanings are and what their what their life world looks like is mm-hmm. probably the best thing you can learn. And, and if I could go back 30 or 40 years and learn that at a much earlier age, I would. Because I can think of periods in my life when I was almost incapable of listening and incapable of comprehension. But, you know, these things you learn as you learn and you grow. Absolutely. What was the name of the person you mentioned? Um, he's called Hans-Georg Gadamer, G-A-D-A-M-E-R. 
I am going to have a look. That does sound interesting. Thank you for that. So fascinating. I, I, I agree with you. You can't make too many assumptions. I have a big, um, big sign on my wall that says there's no such thing as a stupid question. Ask the stupid questions because quite often by asking what you think is the stupid question, you get to the root of actually what's going on or what you need to know. Yeah, I, I think there's a truth. And this has become, I suppose, become foregrounded in my practice a lot through the executive coaching um, course I've undertaken. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of idea that very little in the world changes except through mutually trust, trusting um, dialogue between human beings. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that leadership in many senses is about mutually trusting dialogue between human beings. Mm-hmm. It's about that nexus at which leadership and followership, um, you know, become become one really. Yeah. Uh, if if you're going to ask people to follow you in a particular direction and focus their psychological, emotional, cognitive, um, all their, their skills and their energies on something that you want to achieve as an organisation or as a group of people coming together, then you've got to give them a good reason to do that. Yeah, definitely. You've got to show them where you're going as well, haven't you? Yeah. 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 Fantastic. And so you mentioned John Brady before and, and a couple of other people from your past, but are there, is there sort of one or two leaders that you particularly either identify with or admire, past or present, famous or otherwise, that you'd want to give mention to? I think the first, the first time, um, the first time I think I actively understood and saw leadership and admired it in that sense is late 80s, early 90s. I'm a union official in the Postal Workers Union, which was then the Union of Communication Workers. And its general secretary was a man who went on to um, other degrees of fame called Alan Johnson. Okay. Um, as in Alan Johnson, former MP, mm-hmm. um, writer of quite astonishing autobiographies, that Alan Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a damn sight younger and a lot skinnier in those days. Um, I think that's before subsidised food in Parliament got to him, um, bless him. But I saw him on, on a conference stage and I saw him in conference committees and I saw him in rooms full of um, kind of raggedy arsed postal workers, really, with an attitude. And he was eloquent and intellectual in a way that that, that led me to sort of reflect on how the use of language is power when you see it done in a sophisticated way, it's quite astonishing. There's, there's a kind of magic to it. And there was a discursive power to how he would deploy his own kind of linguistic and personal charisma for particular political ends within that organisation that, that I admired. And many years later, um, I was on um, the, the TUC uh, stole a concept from the Americans and they created a thing called the Organising Academy, okay. which was supposed to recruit and then generate the next generation of trade union leaders for this country. Um, they used a lot of uh, really sophisticated psychometric testing, which went horribly wrong because most of the people that they recru- recruited on those programmes were um, quite strange, myself included. But we went through this program and graduated and there was a graduation ceremony at Congress House and the certificates or whatever they were were handed out by Alan Johnson. Now, I'd, at that point in time, that would have been 2002, three. I'd probably not seen him since 1996 when I left the post office. Okay. Um, but he walked up to me 
And he said, he said, congratulations on this. And then he, he said some expletive laden things about the relationship we used to have between my branch of the postal workers and him as the general secretary. And I was just awestruck that he remembered um, and could be bothered mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of doing that, that simple human connection thing. So, you know, we had a laugh and uh, a couple of drinks and a couple of drinks too many um, back in those days. And, um, yeah, so, so I admired Alan Johnson because I think he was the first great leader that I encountered. Mm -hmm. there, aren't, there aren't many other, um, I suppose, people of power that I, that I particularly admire. Okay. The, the most impressive political leader I ever met was Mo Molan. I met her on a train and she was just, just, I didn't want the journey to end. I could have talked to her forever. She was wow. astonishingly engaging, um, very down to earth. So there, there are people like that that I've kind of encountered over the years, but I don't have a sort of pantheon of great leaders that I aspire to. And I think that comes back to the authenticity point, doesn't it? Yeah. That you can't, if you're aspiring to be someone else, then you stopped aspiring to be yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think there are there's, there's elements to be taken from lots of different leaders. Somebody asked me on one of these podcasts, you know, who do you who do you admire? And I can't put my finger on one because I think you take so much from nobody's perfect, are they? And you take so much from so many different leaders that it's difficult to to say just one. So in some ways, it's probably unfair that I ask, <laughs> but good answer. <laughs> I think. Well, I think it's interesting because. It, the thought process that you go through is you think, well, what are the characteristics of a great leader that I admire? Any of those characters, have I encountered them? Or have I? And I think, I think you're right, Amy. I think it's, you know, the approach to these things is more magpie than anything else, isn't it? You, mm -hmm. you, you sort of bounce around in life going, I like that. Well, yeah. there's a little construct. I'm having that. Yeah. Um, I'm nicking that. Hans yeah. Georg Gadamer's dead, so I can nick all this stuff. He doesn't mind. Um, and, you know, you, you, you do you sort of come across things and you think, and that's brilliant. That that sort of tweaks my approach to that mm -hmm. in a in a lovely way. Um, I suppose what I what I learned from Mo Molum in you know a couple of hours on a train. I don't even remember where we were going. Um, and she was lovely because I I kind of wandered up and went, "Hello, you're Mo Molum," and she <laughs> said, "I am, yeah. Who are you? What do you want?" Um, and then we sat down and had a conversation. So she may tell she she may have told the story very differently. <laughs> <laughs> for all I know, if it ever became a story for him, I know them. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's yeah, you, you you bounce around, don't you? There's a there's a concept that I use to apply to to learning, which is pinballing. It's just just kind of idea of you know the pinball machine and it just bouncing around, just lights coming on, all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes those little those little journeys that you take, um, you know, get you somewhere. Because I was I was trying to remember the quote about tarrying with words. I was trying to remember that this morning and think that through. So a bit of Googling and I came across a dissertation that um, a lady wrote some years ago. It's absolutely brilliant. So that's now been added to my reading pile just because it looked absolutely fascinating. And yeah. she was engaged in this kind of love affair with the idea of tarrying with words and words as art and words as co-creation and all that kind of stuff. So... That's um, unfortunately added 60 pages to the reading pile, which is the next question, right? <laughs> I was going to say, but that's how it happens, isn't it? If you're, like you say, you were talking about alignment earlier on in the call. If you're on the right track and you're aligned with, you know, where the organisation's going and you've, you're being authentic, you're going to come across those learning experiences. You're going to come across those documents and those books. Yeah. And, and that all adds to it. I think that's fantastic. 
Brilliant. So yes, on to the next question. What are you reading at the moment or what would you recommend? The top shelf. Um, uh-huh. that's, that's the PhD reading pile. Um, or the red pile, actually, because that's um, I'm in the process of revising a couple of chapters. So I'm going back to things that I built, methodological things and constructs that I kind of knitted and, and weaved together some time back yeah. um, to try and make them more astute. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of reading there. And I have to these days because I'm, uh, I think I've run out of time in 2024. I've been at this part time since 2015. So um, I have to focus when when I'm doing those kind of things because it would just keep growing. I have this this drive to just read everything and know everything. And mm-hmm. um, so there's a there's a PhD reading pile, which is that's the secondary one. There's another one on the other side of the office. I was going to say it's pretty um, extensive just there by the looks of it. It just it just grows because you find yourself, you read something and you get in the bibliography and you highlight and all that. And then yeah. you get all that stuff and then you highlight and all that. And you suddenly find that from a couple of papers, you've got 60, 60 odd papers. And they're not all going to help you, but they might all be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I do like reading, so I, I read a lot. So on the PhD, it's that. And mm. the stuff up there about the history, I'm researching the teacher unions. So stuff up there about the history of the teacher unions. Um, there's stuff up there about collective memory, which is um, part of my thesis. There's some industrial relations stuff up there. Um, Gadama's up there and a whole bunch of writing about Gadama and then people writing about people writing about Gadama um, in an endless kind of <laughs> cycle. Yeah. I'm doing some reading around psychology for the executive coaching course. Mm-hmm. Studied it years ago, but, but wanted to get into... Um, some aspects of that, that that fit with, I suppose, the practices of executive coaching that I'm comfortable and authentic doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading, uh, I won a little competition the other day to name a book. Um, so I got sent a copy of a book by a wonderful um, educator and writer on behaviour management in schools, a lady called Adele Bates. So a little shout out for Adele. Her book is called Miss I Don't Give a Shit. Um, and if you ever have to deal with children in a behaviour management sense, you really ought to read her book because it's absolutely astonishing. And she ran a little Twitter competition to name the follow-up book, and I mm-hmm. won. So it's going to be called Whatever. I <laughs> <laughs> know what you, what you get from kids of a certain age, isn't it? Yeah. You just stop doing that. Yeah. Uh, bless them. So I'm reading that at the moment. And um, I'm rereading some stuff that I read as a kid by a science fiction writer called Michael Moorcock. Okay. So uh, that's my reading pile at the moment. Book recommendations? I wouldn't. I just just don't. Um, I'll tell people what I'm reading. I'll talk to people about books, but make recommendations. Just it's never kind of so easy, wouldn't they? You know, if somebody comes to me and says. Um, I'm in, you know, involved in various academic networks and stuff. Mm-hmm. If they come to me and say, I'm really interested in, you know, the Miners Federation of Great Britain or whatever, yeah. what would you read? I will build somebody a reading list because I quite like doing that because I'm a bit of an academic geek. But um, make book recommendations, not usually. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for sharing your, your insight there. And so over the next six to nine or 12 months, what's going to be going on at the school's people then? What's on your desk for 2022? Um, I think the primary goal that we have for the next year is to support the sector 
at its most exhausted. Okay. I've never known the people in the schools be this exhausted. Yeah. And clearly what that leads to is the potential for bad decision-making, the, the, the potential for um, people adopting, you know, bad, bad strategy and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think our primary goal is just we have a slogan that we developed some years ago, at your side and on your side. Yeah. And it's a little bit trite, but it does describe how we, we try to work. Mm -hmm. So I guess um, we'd see ourselves as, as supporters and critical friends to the sector while it's just knackered. Yeah. Um, having been through what it's been through. Um, Organisationally, the next six to 12 months is going to be embedding the executive coaching offer, which the parent company is talking about offering pretty much as a freebie provided by us to their multi-academy trust clients. Mm -hmm. So that'll be setting up, personally doing, but also setting up a team to deliver um, executive and leadership coaching and also coaching to trustees, Yeah, the, you know, the lay people. Who, who run some of these organisations and often get, you know, no recognition and no um, support in doing so. Mm -hmm. And we've got a couple of uh, um, relationships with, with companies that are big in the multi-academy trust sector that we're going to develop. Within the, um, I think within the sector itself, there's the exhaustion. But the biggest, the biggest challenge, I think, for the next six to 36 months is going to be the loss of seasoned professionals that exhaustion is leading to an exodus. The exodus is leading to a really tight labour market mm -hmm. to the point where even in, in what you might consider to be the more attractive schools to work in, if there's such a thing, I think they're all great, but mm -hmm. some people may pick and choose. They're having difficulty recruiting teachers, they're having difficulty recruiting leaders, yeah. um, and there are you know some really significant um, sort of person power, talent pipeline, planning, labour market issues that the sector is going to have to resolve. But unfortunately, because we've had for many, many years a sort of hands-off to planning approach from central government, mm -hmm. they produce reports about the labour market issues and then do nothing about it, um, devolving it down to the sector to sort its own problem by magicking new teachers out of nowhere, mm. which probably isn't going to work. It's not, certainly not sustainable, is it? No. No. So, I mean, you know, some of the work that we're doing is around career pathways from inside schools. Okay. We have a multi-academy multi trust that we work with in the northwest. Um, they can have a name check. They're called Forward as One. It's um, an Anglican, mainly primary-based multi-academy trust run by an inspirational leader, a lady called Karen Bramwell, mm -hmm. uh, fellow of the Chartered College of Teaching. Amazing woman. And they've developed what they call career flight paths. So no matter what your entry point into one of their organisations is, mm. whether that's as a teaching assistant, as a welfare assistant, as a midday supervisor, as a teacher, as a leader, um, dealing with estates, as a caretaker, there is a qualification pathway for you. There's a career aspiration pathway for you. And we call them flight paths because they can, they can choose what their destination yeah. is and where they want to go to. So that's part of the answer from, mm -hmm. you know, within the sector, the things that have largely been created outside of the sector by yeah. its political controllers. Well, that's, that, that's initiative sounds fantastic and it would be great if it was rolled out, not just in schools, but across the board. I think there are lots of yeah. sectors that could benefit from having those kind of career flight paths that sometimes it's, it's, it's not dealt with until it's an issue. 
I think that's true. And I, I also think that um, it's partly time and resources. It's mm-hmm. partly having, you know, somebody to coordinate those, those kind of things. Um, in a period when I was, I lived in the potteries and I was unemployed for a while while I was doing my master's, writing up my master's dissertation. I, um, back in those days, you had to attend job clubs. And I clearly remember sitting down with people who'd been made redundant from the pot banks as the pottery started to, to shrink. And then saying, you know, they'd be looking through in those days the newspapers and going, well, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that. But when he sat them down and said, well, I don't really understand pot banks, I've never worked in one. What did you used to do? Mm-hmm. And they'd say, oh, I was a, a sponge fettler, second class. And so, what's that? T- talk me through, what, did, what is it done? And you'd find out that they had an astonishing knowledge of the chemistry of clay and an astonishing set of manual skills and an astonishing eye and astonishing mathematics and astonishing um, eloquence around what they were doing. And when you start writing down the things that they could do, you could then say to them, well, if you map that onto careers over here or you map that onto this job, have you ever considered doing that? No. Yeah. And only because nobody had ever... I'd ever kind of done that that mapping with them, uh-huh. and I think I think we do have a problem as a society that in the age of lifelong learning, you can pretty much go off and do anything at any point in time. But you still, I think most people still need that human kind of dialogue around. Well, what are your aspirations? What are your goals? What are you mm-hmm. good at? What would you like to learn? What do you want to commit yourself to? Yeah, you know yeah. what what gets you fired up, um, yeah. and often it's it's yeah, yeah i think it's that element that's missing and it's fascinating watching people once you've kind of lit the blue touch paper mm-hmm. kind of watching them you know go off and and you know the, the loveliest thing that you ever get in those circumstances is you know i know i know a couple of those people from the bodies who went on to be managers in fairly significant retail establishments and they've never you know never consider i can't work in a shop never worked in a shop don't know how shops work yeah, yeah. i know clay well, you do now, you do today, but what does the future look like? And I think you're right. I think, um, you know, in the HR terms, there could be much more of that done. And much more of it done, you know, there's a couple of networks on LinkedIn that are very good. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's a HR practitioner's network yeah. run by a lady whose name I've rudely forgotten. Um, that's just about kind of encouraging people to see their next step yeah. in that particular career, in that particular pathway, um, and then match them with people so that they can talk to people who are more experienced or have been more successful. Definitely. Sometimes it's yeah. as simple as that, isn't it? It's helping people see that they have a transferable skill set or that yeah. they have, you know, this, the seedlings of a new career or that they could work in a different sector. I think sometimes it's just that hand-holding or that confidence boost that people need to say, you can do this, we could, you know, you could try it and this is all you need to, to bridge the gap. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the truth we, we seem to have discovered in the last 20 years is that, it's much more difficult to develop soft skills than it is to develop technical skill. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You can learn, you know, the, the culture of sector, you can learn the technical requirements for a particular post. And if your employer is any good, they're going to give you some kind of training and development to do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of people already have the soft skills, which we value. Mm-hmm. They just need evolution and development. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that, Chris. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your story and, and sharing your insight as well. Yeah, really very, very welcome. That's been, yeah, that's been a great hour. Thanks, Simon.